listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 256 of Belaboured, our podcast about work, working, and organizing your workplace. Today, we're talking about the new Congressional Workers Union. You heard earlier this year on the show about a change to the law that allowed legislative staff in Congress to form unions. And this week, we speak to Hill staffers and unionists about the first union election, which took place last week. But first, I want to thank everyone once again. You're probably sick of hearing this. You get a lot of these pitches, but nonetheless, it actually does matter that you've been supporting us financially for nine years of labor journalism. And to remind you that we've been able to do this podcast for nine whole years of talking about work and workers because people like you have given us money every month to keep us going. We paywall absolutely nothing here because we want to make sure that everything is available to the widest possible audience. We know times are tough right now and not everybody has the funds, but our paying supporters make it possible to make our work accessible to everyone. You can support us at patreon.com slash belabored. Thanks. And now the news. It's been another roller coaster week here in England as the new prime minister continues to wreck the economy. In this case, with a budget proposing to give capital everything it wanted, which it turns out wasn't what it actually wanted at all. The pound is tanking, as is Liz Truss's approval rating. But I spent the week in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference and the world transformed, and there was plenty of action there to go around. Labour is feeling good about its chances as Liz Truss sets a land speed record for letters of no confidence. But the workers, you know, the ones who gave the party its name, as Dave Ward pointed out a few weeks ago here on Belaboured, are not happy with the Labour leadership. I visited the dock workers you heard from on our last episode down at the Liverpool port on their second week on the picket line, and I also caught up with some of them as they marched on the conference, demanding to know why Keir Starmer forbade his front bench from visiting the pickets. Here's a little clip from that visit. Come on, Starmer! Where are you, Starmer? Where are you, Starmer? Where are you, Starmer? Where are you, Starmer? United! We'll never beat it, beat it! Plenty of MPs did go visit the picket line, Starmer or no Starmer, and the strike continues. But the battle for the heart of the Labour Party also continues. While John McDonnell, Zara Sultana, Jeremy Corbyn, and many others joined the picketing dock workers, a different wing of the party held an event co-sponsored by a platform company, Deliveroo. Open Democracy reports, quote, The panel, organized by both Deliveroo and labor right campaign group Progressive Britain, was slated to include a labor MP, a GMB representative, a Deliveroo representative, and a delivery driver. But Martin Hermoso, listed on the event description as a Deliveroo rider, is in fact an engagement manager at the company. Deliveroo insisted Hermoso began riding with us and continues to ride today, although his LinkedIn profile lists him purely in corporate roles during his seven years with the business, and he made no reference to any experiences of being a rider during the event. Speaking to Open Democracy, couriers for the company who can earn well below the minimum wage criticized the lack of gig workers at the event. They should have had riders in the room, said Joe Durbage, 30, a Deliveroo driver of three years and an independent workers of Great Britain, IWGB rep. I think it's telling that they couldn't even organize a rider to come along and talk. This form of dialogue is largely cosmetic. This was a PR event launched off the back of their deal. Earlier this year, Deliveroo announced a union partnership with GMB, effectively blocking recognition from the IWGB, which had publicly represented members since 2016 and staged strikes with its drivers. The GMB recognition agreement received criticism at the time for not providing employee status for workers, where have we heard that before, denying them access to basic employment rights such as sick pay and redundancy pay. 
Couriers also argue that the guaranteed national minimum wage would not be upheld as it would only cover when riders were actively on a job, not when they were waiting for orders, end quote. So I often wonder why some of these people want to be in the Labour Party at all, particularly at this moment where the already hot anger at the cost of living crisis is being fanned by the collapse of the pound and the chancellor's budget, which a friend of mine said to me this weekend. At least they're being honest about how much they hate the poor. New data, meanwhile, says that hot strike summer was very real here in Britain. The Office of National Statistics had temporarily suspended collection of work stoppage data during the pandemic, but restarted this June, and the numbers are, well, quote, in June and July 2022, there were 70,500 and 87,600 working days lost, respectively, as a result of labor disputes. The June 2022 figure is an increase of 51,000 compared with the 2019 average, and the July 22 figure is an increase of 68,100 compared with this average. Furthermore, in June and July 2022, most of the labor disputes took place in the transport and storage industry. In June 2022, 60,900, or 86.4% of the working days lost, and 38, or 64.4% of the stoppages were in transport and storage, end quote. So, I think it's about time for the Labor Party to decide, as the old song goes, which side it's on. Telework or working remotely, has made life easier for many office workers during the pandemic. But now a lot of offices are switching to a hybrid model, mixing in-person and telework. And new research says that the convenience may come at a cost for some workers more than others. According to new research on the experiences of hybrid remote workers in the United States, the UK, and other countries, women may be at a particular disadvantage when it comes to opportunities for promotion and more prone to burnout. According to a study by the Chartered Management Institute of Britain, The Guardian reports, quote, two in five managers surveyed said they had already observed opinion or behaviors suggesting an inequality between those who work flexibly and those who do not. Female managers were more likely than their male counterparts to believe hybrid working could negatively affect career progression, unquote. Granted, this is focused on managerial employees, but all office workers face similar circumstances in the era of hybrid work, and the lower ranked you are in the office workplace, the less flexibility you have. Employees need to calculate their decision to work from home or to come into the office based on how they think their bosses will respond and how it will affect all of those more nuanced social dynamics at work that can affect your career prospects, like the casual chat at the water cooler or spontaneous collaborative meetings with colleagues. And yes, we are talking about a relatively privileged set of professional employees here, but just imagine what it must be like for lower-ranking office workers, like call center workers or receptionists. Another recent study by Deloitte, based on surveys of thousands of workers in 10 countries, found that, quote, 60% of female hybrid workers felt that they had been excluded from meetings, while almost half worried that they did not get the exposure to leaders necessary for career progression. Female hybrid workers reported more instances of being excluded from informal but important interactions and conversations, being given opportunities to speak in meetings, and having colleagues take credit for their ideas, unquote. There's nothing new here. But COVID is amplifying these discrepancies because men, on the whole, tend to opt for in-person work more frequently. The CMI study found that, quote, male managers are significantly more likely to mostly or completely work from the office, 48% versus 38%, unquote. These patterns reflect gender imbalances in the phenomenon known as presenteeism, or using 
so-called FaceTime in the office to boost one's chances of winning the boss's favor or promotion. That may be harder for women who typically shoulder more of the burden of family caregiving and domestic duties and don't have that much time for schmoozing. Another reason these findings are particularly relevant in the pandemic era is the gender discrepancy in in the impacts of long COVID. Women are significantly more likely than men to report long-term residual symptoms of COVID-19, according to a study published earlier this year in Journal of Women's Health. That means more chronic fatigue, more headaches, more respiratory issues, etc. So the greater incidence of COVID-related disability among women office workers, combined with disadvantages and discrimination that they disproportionately face as a result of the hybrid working environment, could mean that the trend towards flexible work, which was supposed to bring freedom for office workers, especially women, could end up widening economic gender gaps. And we also have to take into consideration the fact that most lower-income women do not have access to remote work or other flexible work arrangements. They're stuck working that cashier job or working as nannies in the homes of those women office workers. So if we want to make the workplace more open and accommodating, maybe what's needed is a reframing of the idea of flexibility that both enables all workers to structure their jobs in a way that fits their lives and also allows for fairness and flexibility so it is not exploited disproportionately by the more privileged workers among us. After much organizing, political pressure, and even involvement from Joe Biden, California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed Assembly Bill 2183, giving farm workers the right to vote in a union election by mail or by dropping off a ballot card at the Agricultural Labor Relations Board, a form of card check. A group of the workers had marched the 335 miles from Delano to Sacramento, following the same route taken by Cesar Chavez and the early incarnation of the United Farm Workers back in 1966, demanding that Newsom sign the bill. But he hemmed and hawed and hinted that he'd veto it. He vetoed something sort of similar last year, because the Labor Party isn't the only one that pretends to be center-left but doesn't actually want to help working people. Because farm workers have historically been carved out of labor laws, their conditions are historically horrific, as you've heard about many times on this show. California farm workers have more rights than those in other states thanks to those decades of organizing, but their union numbers are still low, partly because they are particularly vulnerable to anti-union pressures from the employers. Many of them are undocumented or have otherwise precarious immigration status, and voting from home also gives them the opportunity to have ballots translated into languages they might be more likely to speak than English or to get help from family members or whoever. The LA Times reported, quote, The signature came after union members and their supporters made the 335-mile pilgrimage from Delano, California, to Sacramento, and then camped out in front of the state capitol for weeks as dignitaries visited, a vivid and theatrical display of political heft. Adding to the pressure, President Biden took the unusual step of inserting himself into state politics, releasing a statement over Labor Day weekend urging Newsom to enact the law known as Assembly Bill 2183. Vice President Kamala Harris and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also joined the chorus. End quote. Biden's statement in particular spoke to the farm workers' role as essential workers during the pandemic. Quote, farm workers worked tirelessly and at great personal risk to keep food on America's tables during the pandemic. In the state with the largest population of farm workers, the least we owe them is an easier path to make a free and fair choice to organize a union. End quote. I mean, one might argue that the president could also do something about making sure that immigrant farm workers can live safely and permanently in this country if they choose, but hey. Newsom eventually did the right thing, saying, quote, California's farm workers are the lifeblood of our state. They have the fundamental right to unionize and advocate for themselves in the workplace. California is proud to stand with the next generation of leaders carrying on this movement. 
we will keep an eye on those union elections. And if you are a farm worker in California or elsewhere looking at this legislation, get in touch with us at hashtag belabored or belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Back in November of 2020, Uber and Lyft drivers and other app-based workers in California got slapped with a ballot measure that threatened to systematically strip them of basic labor rights and protections. Proposition 22 was the brainchild of app-based work platforms that were feeling threatened by the California legislature's recent moves to clarify the rights of so-called gig economy workers. A 2019 state law known as AB5 aimed to clarify the definition of independent contractor so that many workers who had previously been considered so-called non-employees would potentially then be covered by state labor protections, such as minimum wage and overtime rules. Proposition 22 carved out exemptions from AB5 for rideshare drivers, platform-based food delivery workers, and other types of workers who had previously been working in an unregulated gray zone of the labor force because they had been classified as independent contractors. Proposition 22 was basically designed to allow those platforms to continue to skirt regulations and avoid the costs of adhering to labor standards. Advocates for app-based workers have been fighting Prop 22 in the courts, but the law remains in place, and now we have data showing the devastating impact it has had on rideshare drivers in the state. The group Rideshare Drivers United partnered with the research group PolicyLink to document how Proposition 22 was affecting their work over a month-long period in the winter of 2021. Now, we've reported for years on how low pay and harsh working conditions are really taking a heavy social toll on rideshare drivers, but this research really underscores the cost of the gap between the present-day reality of rideshare drivers who are stuck in independent contractor status and the potential wages and working conditions they could have if they were only covered by their state's labor standards. Among the findings are that the median take-home earnings for drivers under Prop 22 was a mere $6.20 an hour, and drivers would earn $11 more per hour if they qualified as employees. I spoke with Nicole Moore and Alvaro Bolanez, president and vice president of Rideshare Drivers United, about what the study tells us about Prop 22's model for deregulating platform-based work and what the potential impacts might be if other states enact similar policies. The important thing about this study is this is actual drivers who make a living at driving, driving around, picking up passengers and sending their data back to our central database that we based the study on. It was 55 drivers, 12,000 rides, right, in the months of October, November last year. And so really looking at, well, so under Prop 22, what does uh, pay really look like? Basically, it shows what most of us are afraid to look at, which is that, um, you know, when you when you take out expenses for your car, depreciation for your car, and then you look at stuff like, um, you know, benefits that you're not getting and taxes that you have to pay extra for being self-employed, you know, actually, I mean, it's sad to say, like, we're mostly making less than $7 an hour. Now, that's not to say you didn't put, you know, 200 bucks in your pocket after, you know, working for 12 hours, but, but like, you're really, we're kind of borrowing from the equity of our car. Right. And so that's, that's what's scary about this work. Like it's, it's really, you know, it's really good to put the 200 bucks in your pocket or the 150 bucks in your pocket, or, you know, on a really good night, maybe you make 250 bucks. But, you know, when you look at the time you're putting in the mileage on your car, And then the things you're missing out on, like if you throw that bag into the back of somebody's car 
and uh, you, you put your back out and then, you know, you have to, you know, get surgery or you have to like not drive for, you know, two weeks. How do you pay for that? And um, the reality is most of us in this business, we need that safety net that things like workers comp, unemployment insurance, you know, stuff like that helps us to, you know, stay above water, pay our rent, put food on the table for our kids. Prop 22 is not that, even though that's what they sold us. They sold us that it would, you know, help drivers, that it would keep prices low for passengers, and we would have benefits. It's just not true. With Prop 22, you got to remember that they only pay us when we have a passenger with us. They never pay us when we're driving around looking for a passenger. So that's that's when where um the tricky part is that a lot of drivers they're online driving around burning gas, putting miles on the car for a hundred hours a week, and then uh, Uber and Lyft they're they, they're saying oh, but this driver only drove ten hours. For example, let's say that I get a ride from LAX all the way to San Diego. That's going to be like probably two hours driving with a passenger to San Diego. But what about coming back? That's another two hours and another probably 200 miles that I'm going to put in the car that, that Uber is not going to pay for it. So just to clarify, is the wage comparison that you're doing in this study, does it mean that drivers saw a net decrease in their income as um, after Prop 22? Or is it just that under Prop 22, you're uh, sort of calculating your income differently because you're taking into account all the things that Prop 22 promised? Well, what this report actually does is it compares what is actually being made under Prop 22, which, surprise, surprise, is not even basic minimum wage, right? It's, it's you know, like half minimum wage. Um. But so then we compared that to what we would make if Prop 22 had never come. And, you know, we were just as the law says in California that we were basically employees because we don't have control over setting our prices. We don't have control over anything to do with our job. Right. We just know well, the only thing we can do is turn on our app when we want and turn it off when we want. But we do not have control like any other independent contractor over, you know, our kind of business. So if we are actually employees, which is what the law says, except for Prop 22, we would have a wage floor of $15 an hour, including wait time. And didn't Prop 22 come with the promise that they were going to allow some people to qualify for a health benefit? Yeah, I mean, you got that right. It was promised. But the reality is that less than 10% of us actually receive any benefit from that. And again, it's precarious because it's based on the out, not the hours that you work, but it's the hours that you are transporting a passenger, right? So, so for instance, uh, you know, I, I know one person who, um, you know, she, she was trying to earn uh, enough hours in order to earn the uh, health benefit and she missed it by 13 minutes, not because she didn't have her app on trying to get rides but because the app didn't assign her those rides enough in the deadline for her to accrue the hours she needed, right? So we can't count on the health benefits. And what we found in our healthcare study was that 
the fact that, you know, our health benefits are based on these hours that the, the company has complete control over, it is doing the most disservice to Latino and black drivers. Those are the people that are less insured than other drivers. And then in addition, as a group, drivers are less insured than the rest of the state. So did it help us? I mean, yes, if you get uh, basically a health benefit reimbursement check, you feel that you're being helped. But does it really contribute to us you know, having dependable health care? No. And it has built into it basically discrimination. Finally, I just wanted to update listeners on the current state of Prop 22 because it's still being held up in court, right? So what's the situation? Does that mean the law is effectively suspended or or are drivers still uh, driving under it because uh, it's in place until a court rules otherwise? Prop 22 is still active because the judge, we have to um, wait until the judge decides to overturn it because they consider it that it's unconstitutional. But uh, Uber is still, you know, they still, um, drivers are there still under Prop 22. And, 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 and the problem with Prop 22 is that allows this company to pretty much do whatever they want because that's what the contract says, you know, when a, when Prop 22 passed, the, the Lyft and Uber, they, what they say is like, okay, from now on, we're going to charge the passengers whatever we want, and we're going to pay drivers whatever we want. And that's what is happening now. The Lyft and Uber, they're charging passengers a lot of money, and they're just giving drivers whatever they want. Yeah. Under Prop 22, they're allowed to do that. And, you know, and Prop 22 is staying, uh, staying put through the... Uh through the whole appeal process. You know, we won at the lower court, but it didn't impact anything. It's, you know, it's not even being heard yet in the appellate court. And, you know, they still, it still may go to the Supreme Court of California. So we have a long future in front of us with Prop 22. And they have not, you know, said because it was unconstitutional in the lower court that, you know, it should be um, lifted. We're still under this very bad law that was written by the companies. And I guess in the meantime, uh, they're still trying to spread the Prop 22 model to other states, right? So um, even as things are sort of in limbo in California, um, it could very well just be implemented elsewhere in the country. Exactly. And that was really the point of our report, is that we see Prop 22 going around the country like whack-a-mole. And, uh, you know, it's not... It's not serving the drivers of California, no matter how many people say it's awesome or whatever. It's not. And you can look at the hard numbers. These are hard numbers from real drivers. And these are good drivers. These are drivers that, you know, make a living off of these apps, you know. And uh, we are not making a living when you break down the costs the way we have in the report. And, And we want other states to know. That was Nicole Moore and Alvaro Belenes of Rideshare Drivers United. Although they are instrumental to the day-to-day operations of our legislative branch, congressional staff have for decades been denied the right to collectively bargain. That changed earlier this year with the enactment of key legislation that enabled legislative aides and other professional staff to vote to unionize. 
For many months, the Congressional Workers Union, or CWU, has been campaigning to unionize legislative staff across Capitol Hill, and so far they have laid the groundwork for forming unions of staffers at the offices of Representatives Cory Bush, Chuy Garcia, Ro Khanna, Andy Levin, Ted Liu, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Melanie Stansbury. In addition, the CWU has already negotiated for higher wage floors for congressional staffers. On the heels of the first CWU election at Andy Levin's office, we spoke to two Hill staffers and organizers, Janae Washington and Taylor Doggett, about the long fight to unionize workers on the Hill and what it could mean for labor in Washington and beyond. My name is Taylor Doggett, and I am a communications director in the House of Representatives. I am Janae Washington. I am Deputy Communications Director for Congressman Andy Levin. He represents Michigan's 9th District, and I am also an interim at-large representative for the Congressional Workers Union. Um, So I'm on the executive board alongside Taylor here. And yeah, so Monday was a very historic day for Congress, for the labor movement, for democracy, really. Um, Our tally came in and our staff unanimously, unanimously decided to form a union and bargain collectively. What that really means is that we're able to have a seat at the table. We will be um, soon in the coming weeks going to the bargaining table and really making our demands heard and having a say in workplace conditions and benefits and such of and, and things like that. And so we're really, really pumped up and really excited about it. And we're looking forward to seeing other offices across the Hill, including in the Senate, hopefully also enjoy those same rights. Just to clarify, it's is it um, it's not automatic, right? I mean, the uh, uh, an individual office would need to undergo some uh, a voting process, um, have an election to um, officially unionize, and so far, um, some offices have done that, but most have not. Is that right? Yes. So the process is to the Congressional Workers Union is leading the effort. But workers would first decide that they do want to move forward amongst themselves, and then they file a petition with the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights, also known as OCWR. And then from there, the process begins where OCWR will consider the petitions, verify everything, an election will date will be set, workers, workers will vote. And then if a majority of workers said yes, then the union is formed within the office and then they can move forward to bargaining and um, getting a contract and such. So right now we have eight offices that have filed. So including my office, um, eight total right now with more on the way that we're definitely like pumped up about and want to continue to ride this momentum and this really big moment for workers across the hill. Can you just talk about how the organizing drive began? Um, and uh, I know that it's uh, been uh, months that you've been organizing, and, and uh, there's also been uh, an Instagram account called Dear White Staffers that has kind of um, helped gather some political momentum behind this effort. So uh, can you talk about how that all came together? Yeah, Taylor, you want to take that one? For sure. So, you know, our organizing drive is 
unique in a way because prior to the May passage of a resolution introduced by Congressman Andy Levin, kind of enshrining these collective bargaining rights and protections against retaliation for House employees, we organized in secret. And so the effort that has, you know, now is the Congressional Workers Union as a full labor organization is really something that had been going on for over a year of staffers across personal office and committee offices that were just testing out the question of like, what would a union look like in Congress? What are the steps that we need to take? What are our, what are the points of opposition? Where do we stand without these like natural protections against retaliation? Like what happens if we, if we go for voluntary recognition and someone's chief decides to fire them? So this was really an, an organizing drive that started with a lot of, um, question asking, process development, materials design, a lot of research underground for months and months and months um, until February of this calendar year, February 2022, when Speaker Pelosi expressed at a press conference her support for staff unions on Capitol Hill. And so we then took our organizing drive public and, you know, did a lot of work to ensure that the resolution would be brought to introduce and then brought to the floor that would give House staffers these protections that led us to its May passage and uh, July implementation and then first filing of those eight petitions that Janae mentioned. And we're working, you know, now to try to have similar resolutions introduced to cover joint House and Senate staff and Senate staff standalone. So it's been a, a really interesting organizing drive in that it's happened in this highly political atmosphere. It's happened in this high pressure work environment for work for staffers and that it happened so deeply underground for a long time. And I'd also just like to add, you know, the Congressional Workers Union as a labor organization is relatively new, but the original legislation um, containing these regulations passed in the mid-90s. So the idea that unions should exist in Congress is not new, and we're merely building on the work of a lot of other people that came before us. Yeah, there was that uh, legislation in 1995, right, that uh, extended a lot of labor rights to congressional employees, but for whatever reason, uh, unionization was just not among them. For whatever reason, right? <laughs> we saw a lot of other groups on Capitol Hill um, were able to form unions. Like we have the architect of the Capitol is unionized, the U.S. Capitol Police are unionized, but the specific regulations um, with directives for how personal staff and committee staffers could unionize were never passed. And that's what we were able to get through the House in May of this year. For the uninitiated, can you just explain um, what Dear White Staffers was about or um, how that campaign came about? Yeah, Dear White Staffers, you know, is honestly in absolutely no way affiliated with the Congressional Workers Union. It's a completely anonymized um, social media account that's on a couple of different platforms. Um, and it, it predated, I, from my understanding, our organizing drive even, and has just been kind of a hub for information and conversation starting about work on the Hill. But Dear White Staffers, I think, blew up a little bit this year in the early part of the year with its posting of anonymized accounts of workplace abuse um, and workplace mistreatment starting at the top of this calendar year. Um, and so we, we saw staff speak out really courageously about things that were previously very, very hush-hush. We all know that we work in these high-stress environments and that we work often in really poor conditions with terrible wages, 
tons of bad labor practices, but that was something that was really kept under the wraps before this year. And you only knew that kind of as a beltway insider, or maybe you knew about things going on within your congressional delegation, within your state delegation. But Dear White Staffers gave workers, you know, a mouthpiece to be able to share things that they both loved, disliked, and suffered under in their workplace in an incredibly powerful way. You mentioned uh, some of the uh, the working conditions that people have struggled with. I remember there was a bit of a dust up around um, sexual harassment issues uh, and congressional staff back when the Me Too movement was kind of erupting. Um, and uh, that uh, I don't know if that sort of has progressed um, up in, and or dovetailed with any of your efforts, but um, have you tried to tackle that specifically in your advocacy efforts? Yeah, I think um, concerns about sexual assault in the workplace and workplace safety are absolutely paramount to the worker protections that we're trying to institute by giving workers a seat at the bargaining table. Having recourse for grievances is like a big part of why, you know, workers want to see at the table and just making sure that like we're helping create safe environments for workers is a huge priority for us. I don't know if Janae wants to add anything in there. Yeah. I mean, that, particular um, time like predates my time on the Hill, but I just like what Taylor said that it's we're, we're fighting for workers' rights on all fronts. Um, and so that, you know, topic has come up on Dear White Staffers, which is separate from CWU, but we're really listening to the workers and um, prioritizing what they really, the changes that they want to see in their individual workplaces. And as, as much as that comes up is what we'll continue to fight for. I think some of the workplace issues have also intersected with general concerns about really high turnover among congressional staffers. How do you think unionization will affect uh, the workforce more broadly? And is it because of these working conditions that people are sort of um, being driven to take jobs, say, in the private sector? On the question of retention, I think that a lot of workers, it's just, you know, it's unsustainable to work on the Hill for so many people of marginalized backgrounds, whether that's Black and Brown people, low income or people from rural areas, just because the pay is not, we're, we're, we live in one of the, well, we're working in one of the most expensive cities in the entire country. And so that pay, you know, not being there and people not being able to provide for themselves or having to work, you know, additional two and three jobs, it's just like not, it, it, it's not sustainable at all. And so unfortunately, a lot of people who do have the talent and the passion for the public service of and wanting, you know, a deep desire to work in the institution of Congress and to and to influence um, our laws and and really make change for constituents across the country, aren't able to do that. And they have, you know, went to the private sector. You know, we've so many Hill alum land on K Street, et cetera, because of the pay and because of also the working conditions. So that's something that the Congressional Workers Union is striving to change so that we don't have to have workers flee the Hill and just so that they can live and, and provide for themselves. Yeah, I would just, I, re, I would echo everything Janae said. Collective bargaining will absolutely help Congress retain the talent it needs to serve the American people. And right now, because of these work conditions and because workers don't have a say in their work conditions, we're absolutely seeing, you know, 
brain drain from Congress to these powerful special interests. And staff are in, on the Hill, you know, forced to rely on lobbyists for expertise because the conditions of the Hill don't allow them the means to stay and develop expertise over time and to be able to provide for their families. Um, and so I think that like unionization is good for workers across the board, but I think it will be particularly impactful for our democracy and we'll be able to see better policymaking. Maybe both of you want to take this on, but what has organizing been like these past several months? Have you largely faced a pretty good reception? Um, have you faced any resistance in trying to persuade coworkers? Um, and I'm also curious as to how legislators have responded. Um, I, I get the sense that part of the pressure campaign is also about um, holding Democratic legislators to their supposedly progressive values um, and trying to you know, get them on the record uh, supporting unionization. So um, have you faced uh, resistance in any of those areas? Um, and, um, and how have you persuaded your coworkers? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the resistance that we're seeing is not, I wouldn't classify it as resistance, I would classify it as a need for education, right? So we know that public support for unions is at, I believe, like a 60-year high. Um, We know that this is like the wave of unionization isn't sweeping across the country, and, you know, this year is the year that it reached the halls of Congress. But with all those numbers, there's still a lot people don't know about what a union can do for them, what a union is. And so a lot of the resistance is just educating folks, educating workers about the semantics of a union, the power of a union, helping people understand that like work isn't something that they just have that has to happen to them or that they, you know, wake up and go and punch their card and go home and don't have a say, but that there's a way to reimagine your relationship to work through um, bargaining with the union. And so I'd I'd say that's like our biggest resistance. It's just broadening people's imagination. I definitely think there's an element of fear for the reasons I mentioned earlier, right? This is an incredibly politicized, high stress environment. Like staff are kind of used to not having that say, and they're, you know, concerned about their boss's um, stance on the issues. But it's also, that's an opportunity to remind workers that like, this is a worker movement, right? And so this is about like the demands that you want to bring to the table, and like your voice first and foremost. And it is a really great opportunity to make these legislators walk the walk on the talk that they often campaign on. For me, working in Congressman Levin's office, who is a big labor champion and really worker friendly, you know, it has been a great experience and should serve as like a model for other offices that, you know, workers shouldn't be afraid of or or fearful of intimidation or backlash just because they're organizing and wanting to, you know, come and have a voice at the table. So I think it really does depend on the member themselves and Democrats in general have been, you know, big on unions and workers' rights and have been supporting workers off the Hill, whether it's Starbucks or Amazon, et cetera. And so now this is a real time for um, those same members to show that they can not only talk the talk, but walk the walk and support their own workers as they unionize. I wanted to ask about sort of the future of your office's union because Andy Levin was not reelected. So what's going to happen or what does happen generally with staffers um, when a member is not reelected? 
yeah, so what happens is staffers are out of jobs. Uh, that's just, you know, the, the cut and dry answer. But yeah, so our union will be um, intact until January 3rd or January 2nd, 2023, whatever the end of this current um, Congress. I'm forgetting the exact day. But um, until then, we will continue to fight for a just contract and for and to continue to have a, a seat at the table while we are employed. And um, we're also, you know, exploring other things. But the good thing about our office is that we're going to be able to set a precedent for other offices, whether their member is retiring, resigning, or in the case of Congress 11, um, experienced a primary loss or an election loss in general. So that is kind of like the status. Workers are working every day. And I think any day that a worker is able to have a seat at the table, whether it's for one day or for a thousand or for a 50 year career, that's really important. And just to be able to bring workers to the table to negotiate for this first contract in Mr. Levin's office, we know that that's going to have a profound and immediate impact on those workers' lives, even if we do have a finite date for their tenure in that office. When you're researching this issue, I'm sure you came across a number of other restrictions on either forming unions or collective bargaining in the federal government among civil servants. And I guess it also on this level, Um, what um, I guess, do you hope that this this sets a precedent for maybe um, opening up collective bargaining rights for other public or government workers who currently don't have them? We absolutely do. You know, our belief is just that regardless of industry, regardless of job role, that every worker deserves a union. And so if our organizing drive not only expands people's imaginations, but develops new precedents that can, you know, roll over into other workplaces, I think that's a massive victory. I think that's something to be incredibly excited about. I think we're seeing it here with the fact that in, um, in D.C., you know, the the DNC unionized earlier this year, that there's been a lot more unionized campaign staffers um, on the campaign trail. Like all of those were places where unions formally didn't exist. And because of their presence, it was able to influence public support and legislative support of our unionizing drive. And so I think like in the the CBA that we put forth and in the precedent that we set, we hopefully will have that kind of rollover impact to other workers. Are there going to be any staffers at Republicans offices that are going to be unionizing, do you think? You know, I... <laughs> I would reiterate that we want every worker to have a union. And I think what's important, we, we, I will say we have had interest um, in our organizing drive over the last seven months, really, since we went public in February, we have had interest from Republican staffers. So I, I wouldn't say that it was an overwhelming number, but there is definitely interest in those offices. And Republican staffers are often coming from offices where their bosses are proponents of right-to-work laws, where they're generally anti-union organizing. Um, And so that can be a scary landscape for those staffers to operate in if they're interested. But we're hoping that, like, these petitions rolling in will continue to inspire these types of workers because at the end of the day, these Republican staffers are suffering under a lot of the same workplace abuses as Democratic staffers are in, in poorly managed offices. Yeah. Just a point of clarification, um, this is only for the staffers who work in D.C. offices, or is it like once there's a union election, that person's home district office is also unionized? The election covers 
staffers in both office locations. We kind of talk about them as split often because of that location difference, but really like everyone is employed as a staffer in the office of Congressman Andy Levin, right? Like it's an umbrella. So yeah, these, these union contracts will cover workers in both locations. Does the legislation that enables unionization, does it also cover um, people who work for Congress as a whole? I believe they're sort of permanent staff who are not employed as the personal staff of any legislator. Yeah. So some of those that just kind of work in the congressional complex, some of those workers already are, depending on their job role, they already were protected or may be unionized, kind of how I spoke about like the United States Capitol Police, right, or the architect of the Capitol staff already have the ability to form unions. But you are correct in your assertion that this resolution covers workers not just in personal offices. So it's going to, it covers um, staffers in the personal offices, staffers in permanent, select, temporary, special committees, staffers in the leadership offices. So that would be the office of the Speaker of the House, the office of the majority leader, office of the minority leader, the offices of the whips, right? And then also the offices of the clerks of the House, as well as the legislative council office, general counsel, parliamentarian, um, the chief administrative officer, legislative computer systems, finance, sergeant of arms. So there is a, a large number of, of staffers outside of the personal office umbrella that are now covered under this resolution that passed in May. Yes, the the last question I have is, uh, this is an interesting political moment that we're in right now, and we're heading towards the midterms, and there's all this talk about how the House uh, may flip, and who knows what will happen in 2024. Are you sort of bracing or, or making moves to kind of safeguard the collective bargaining rights that you've won under uh, democratic control of Congress? Um, and, and what do you anticipate in the future um, if the, uh, you know, if the, the political balance of power does shift in Washington? I think it's too early to call what the, what, what we'll see after this midterm election. And like you said, definitely too early for 2024. But I think regardless of who's in power, like it is an utmost priority of ours to make sure that these rights are enshrined and that they're very carefully protected. So I definitely say that we're, we're keen to the, to the high tension um, uh, dynamics of this race and what the outcome may be and definitely working to make sure that like things are, are protected and that workers will continue to organize no matter who's in the majority come the 118th Congress. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Those were Hill staffers and organizers Janae Washington and Taylor Doggett, and you can find more information about their union on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week's ARG piece does have, well, a sort of happy ending, a really miserable kind of way, and it's an utterly infuriating story. Titled, Company Asked Employees to Bring Family Pets to Office to Work Through Hurricane Ian by Paul Blessed Advice, the story is about a company called Postcard Mania, based in Clearwater, Florida, which was directly in the path of Hurricane Ian. Clearwater had declared a state of emergency days earlier, but the company was still insisting that its employees had to work. 
Blessed writes, quote, but in various communications to employees Monday, the company insisted that the media was overhyping Hurricane Ian, which was expected to make landfall in Florida Wednesday with 155 mile per hour winds after leaving the entire nation of Cuba without power, and that employees were still expected to work through potential disaster, even if that meant bringing their families to the office. If you want to leave your home and you're being told to leave your home and you feel like you should and you have no place to go, PCM, Postcard Mania, is probably the safest place to be in Florida, CEO Joy Jandusa told employees during a Monday Zoom call, according to a copy of minutes from a staff meeting obtained by Vice News. Anyway, bring your pets, bring your kids, bring everybody to PCM. Obviously, you feeling safe and comfortable is of the utmost importance, but I honestly want to continue to deliver and I want to have a good end of quarter, Jandusa added. And when the hurricane turns into nothing, I don't want it to be like, great, we all stopped producing because of the media and that maybe it was going to be terrible. An automated text from the company sent to employees also said, PCM was built to withstand Category 5 wins. We would like to continue to service our national clients if we can. Bring your kids to work on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. End quote. As a once again resident of New Orleans, though I have been spending hurricane season in England this year, the whole thing sends chills down my spine. I remember people dismissing the effects of hurricanes because they'd been fine in the past. And then I remember Hurricane Katrina. Climate change means more, bigger, meaner storms that hold their strength longer, destroy more than one city or more than one country. And that means that the past isn't going to be a good indicator of the present. And we're going to have to spend a lot more time thinking about what that means for working people. This story was originally broken on Twitter by Jonah Furman of Labor Notes, and the company originally denied that it was staying open during the hurricane device, saying instead that its building was open as a shelter. Blessed writes, quote, Vice News independently confirmed the transcript and text communications initially reported by Furman and viewed an email sent Monday morning by the company's vice president of human resources reiterating the message. As most of you know, PCM was built to withstand a Category 5 hurricane, and since we are a national company, we would like to continue servicing our clients if we can, the email said. You will be allowed to bring your children to work those two days. We will have movies and other fun stuff in the common area to keep them entertained. End really grim quote. Workers told Blast that they'd definitely gotten the message that they were supposed to stay productive. Quote, a current Postcard Mania employee who spoke to Vice News on condition of anonymity for fear of retaliation suspected Furman's tweet and the negative response on social media drove the company's decision to change course. I was under the impression that we were expected to work, and if you had to work from home or an evacuation zone, log in on your laptop, the employee said. The messaging was production will not slow down, consistently up until that post went viral. Employees who spoke to Vice News said that workers were still expected back in the office Friday, and they were still expected to hit their 40 hours of work, even if that meant working through the weekend. The anonymous employee summarized the general feeling among workers as concern and frustration, end quote. So as I record this, Hurricane Ian has hit Florida with those 155-mile-an-hour winds, and horrifying photos of people wading through chest-deep water are circulating, Two and a half million people in Florida are without power, and Biden has declared a major disaster. And I look at all of this with a sadly familiar sense of horror and awareness that where I live could obviously be next. And how many employers will be and have been pressuring their workers to keep coming in, to keep going, not to evacuate so they can be at the office the next day? Particularly in a state like Florida, well, if you don't know Governor Ron DeSantis, I don't even know what to say. Workers' rights in climate catastrophes are going to be an ongoing issue that unions and others will have to take seriously. So while the public attention seems to have made postcard mania tone down its uh, urge to work, how many stories like this one have we already missed? 
My pick for ARG is Lee Harris in The American Prospect, a piece called Industrial Policy Without Industrial Unions. The much-celebrated Inflation Reduction Act passed by Congress earlier this year promised a historic investment in electric vehicles and clean energy generation. And in typical neoliberal Democrat fashion, the bill does not rely on mandates for industry, but rather incentives, on the assumption that the free market will work its magic and somehow goad corporations to decarbonize the economy voluntarily. But this business proposition doesn't really seem to work when it comes to ensuring that this drive toward energy transition doesn't steamroll over workers and unions. Harris recalls how President Biden campaigned on the promise of supporting organized labor and that he would make decarbonizing the economy, building electric vehicles and solar panels and transforming the electricity grid a top priority for his jobs agenda. And some early analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act suggests that, indeed, several million jobs could be generated under the law's extensive system of subsidies. And Harris points out that, quote, many of those jobs will be in old Democratic strongholds where the party is now hemorrhaging support, like mining in Nevada and auto production in the Midwest, unquote. But union jobs may not follow federal money into those Democratic strongholds. Lawmakers seem happy to incentivize investment in green technology and green energy to court investors, but these corporations in many cases face few, if any, consequences for hiring non-union labor, undercutting industry wages through subcontracting, or skirting labor and safety protections. For all the talk about moving toward a low-carbon future, politicians seem willing to risk the loss of union jobs or risk a stark regression in labor conditions on the road to a greener economy. Harris writes, quote, if low-quality jobs are created first, it could prove hard to level up later. Decarbonization is an early-stage industry, and standards set now are likely to be locked in. Early signs are worrying. The big three automakers are using transition to electric cars as an opportunity to bring on an underclass of nominally unionized but lower-tier workers, or to skip unions at new factories altogether, unquote. This is a pretty old story. Technological innovation has historically been used as a pretext for either shedding jobs or busting unions, but now it's all being done with a green, eco-friendly twist. The clean energy transition is boosting newer electric vehicle manufacturers like Tesla, and suppliers of the materials, parts, and technology that go into those cars, which in many cases seem actively hostile to unionization. In the case of one car company, Rivian, which recently built a plant in Normal, Illinois, an investigation by the state attorney general's office found that Rivian, quote, used an elaborate subcontracting arrangement to deny overtime to Mexican laborers. Rivian initially hired MINO Equipment, a China-based subcontractor used by several American EV companies, including Tesla. MINO contracted the work to firms based in Florida and Spain. Those companies further subcontracted out to Mexico-based SDS and LAM Automation, which hired workers from Mexico for the construction jobs in Illinois. At least 113 Mexican workers were denied overtime, the investigation learned, as they routinely worked between 60 and 80 hours per week, unquote. And while Rivian recruited workers all the way from Mexico, it also deliberately overlooked local union workers right there in Illinois. Rivian avoided hiring local workers despite absorbing many millions of dollars in local tax breaks. So, of course, Rivian is partially to blame for these practices, but unions like IUPAT, the painter's union, are also increasingly annoyed that their elected officials seem to be lavishing subsidies on these companies without imposing any conditions on them to ensure that workers in the surrounding community benefit from the jobs they bring. This is not to say that manufacturers should all be barred from hiring outside workers, but there seems to be little incentive and even less direct pressure on companies to 
deliver any substantive economic benefit to the communities where they set up their plants. And these are often communities that are starved for good jobs and have suffered badly under deindustrialization. There's also a fundamental problem baked into the union infrastructure in the U.S. In addition to representing just a tiny portion of the private sector workforce, organized labor is also hampered by an enterprise-based union model in which contracts cover individual shops rather than a whole sector, and which often lacks leverage to really change conditions on an industry-wide level. And it's particularly prone to lagging behind industry innovation. In the auto industry in particular, the UAW has become a lumbering bureaucratic beast, mired in corruption scandals, and often criticized for being extremely unresponsive and undemocratic when it comes to the needs of younger members. Auto workers have been exploited under a two-tier wage system that the union originally negotiated with Big Auto in hopes of saving jobs. Now it looks like the impending boom in electric vehicles may only further erode union power on the next generation of assembly lines. Harris writes, quote, any new technology introduced, even a slight tweak or innovation, offers an opportunity for the corporation to say that the production doesn't fall under the auspices of the old union contract. The same is true, for example, in Hollywood. As reality shows became more popular, networks and production companies claim that unscripted TV fell outside of old union contracts, unquote. Throughout the article, there are voices talking about the need for unions to get back to grassroots organizing. And that's absolutely true, especially considering that many unions like the UAW have suffered under sclerotic and conservative leadership. But what's truly frustrating about the article and the organizing landscape that it describes is that politicians seem to be taking the loyalty of union voters for granted and yet seem to care so little about supporting labor, union or non-union, in their transition to a green economy. And it raises the question of what the purpose of a green economy is. There is no guarantee that green jobs will be good jobs. Is the end goal of economic decarbonization simply to turn Americans into mass consumers of renewable energy and green technology? Or is it to build more sustainable, equitable, and just communities? Labor unions often talk about the need for a just transition, which would ensure that the most vulnerable in society are protected and lifted up as society tries to adapt to and combat climate change. But when the government thinks that the free market is the best steward for a transforming society, the labor movement needs to develop a new kind of political energy to give workers control over the economic and environmental destiny that, after all, they'll be creating. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Colin Kinneborough and Natasha Lewis for making us sound good. And if you want to catch all of the archived episodes of Belabored, you can go to the Descent website at descentmagazine.org. And please, if you want to support our independent journalism, consider donating on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And of course, we would love to hear your feedback. If you're an auto worker wondering what the transition to greener vehicles means for your job, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you're driving for Uber and want to talk about how Proposition 22 has made your job worse. Or if you're a farm worker in California wondering if a union might help you resist the onslaught of global warming and wildfires that's going to be devastating the agricultural industry, please get in touch with us. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or you can find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.